It was February of 1981. After 18 months of being without a senior pastor, the congregation of Scottsdale Bible Church extended a call to a young man from California to be the next senior pastor, Dr. Daryl Delhousay. I felt the train was already moving. My desire was just to jump on the direction it was going and make sure I didn't uh, derail the whole thing. For the next 25 years, from 1981 to 2006, Scottsdale Bible Church grew and prospered under the leadership of Dr. Delhousay. That's why he says, study the show thyself, a workman who need not be ashamed of himself, rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, let culture tell me what I'm supposed to think, what I'm supposed to do, and you call that freedom? Pastor Darrell brought a unique teaching style to the pulpit of SBC. God bless you, walk worthy and great wisdom. God bless you, walk worthy of it. May we walk worthy of that calling. That emphasized biblical truth and practical application combined with unique humorous expressions Holly means hospitality and the Holy One. Daryl means of the region of wild animals. <laughs> the Bible's over here. I'm going to stand over here. Matter of fact, I'm going to stand way over here. That over the years became known as Darylisms. Daryl Dalhuse was our senior pastor for nearly 25 years, and during that time, said some pretty memorable things. So we're out here in the patio talking to some of the folks from Scottsdale Bible Church to see what they remember as his most famous Darylisms. Some Christians act like they've been baptized in pickle juice. <laughs> oh my, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. Here it is, I say it to my kids all the time, giggo, garbage in, garbage out. Holly's British and I'm French and the war still continues. <laughs> I always remember Daryl saying early is on time. Early is on time. All right, the Bible's here and I'm stepping over here. That's like trying to nail jello to the wall. Um, Pat Sullivan is a beautiful man. I have no empathy. I, you don't want me to do counseling. I just can't deal with anybody messing with my hair. You know what you're made of? because if you get bumped, it's what spills out. Uh, wisdom is saying, I'm never gonna do that again. Oh, if you smoke, it doesn't mean you're going to hell, just that you smell like you've been there. <laughs> the thing that always sticks in my mind, and I use it myself when I pray, walk worthy. Walk worthy. Yeah, the first time that I met Holly, I rolled my eyes at her, and she picked them up and rolled them back. It's shopping for women, and guys are like hunters. We want to go get it and leave. The stronger person always initiates the peace. I hate that. I mean, all the times that's made me then apologize, because I always think of what Daryl said, and it just ticks me off. So you're the stronger person always? Uh, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. Let me know if everyone's already done this one. But uh, that'll go over like a pregnant pole vaulter. That went over like a pregnant pole vaulter. That went over like a pregnant pole vaulter. Goes over like a pregnant pole vaulter, one taco short of a combination plate. And there's too many to think of, Steve. It's like uh, you could write a book about it. Please welcome back Daryl Delisay. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you very much. People have asked me, how do you uh, feel about all this? Well, first, I feel grateful that Ed Wilmington is still alive and well. <laughs> how do I feel about this church? I feel about this church like I feel about my home. You see, this is where, as a young pastor, I learned servant leadership. This is where Holly and I raised two little boys. The guy I'm here, John's 39, Ken's 37, they were five and seven, little John, John, and Pootywad. This is where um, I married some friends. This is where I buried some friends. This is where God planted in the hearts of Daryl and Holly ministry. But I, I do find myself wondering from time to time, and I always have in the 30 years I've been here in the valley, how, how Jesus feels about our church. You know, he is the boss. Matthew 16, Jesus said, I, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is his church. And I'm always interested, how does he feel about us? Well, if you love God, that means you have your Bibles. So open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation, chapter 3. Here we have with the book of Revelation, it's been now 60 years since Jesus has been crucified, raised from the dead, ascended up, sitting at the right hand of the Father. 60 years later, his church has been growing. He's been building his church for 60 years. Now he checks in on him. And this is the book of Revelation. Apparently chapter 1 says that he moves among the lampstands, the golden lampstands. Those are representative of the seven churches. In other words, apparently Jesus moves around his church, every part of it, and he's well aware of what is going on. And, and this is Jesus checking in on us, this part of his church. With this 50th year celebration here at Scottsdale Bible Church, this is also a year of celebration. It's a year of reflection. We just want to make sure we're everything we, we, we need to be. I have only one dream for this church. I still have only one dream for this church, that we be healthy. Healthy because if something's healthy, it's strong. If it's strong, it grows. It grows in a healthy way. It, it, it does what, what would honor the Heavenly Father and, and please its creator, Jesus Christ himself. Pastor Jamie asked me to take a look at the fifth of these seven churches. Church of Sardis, sometimes referred to as Sardius. This is better known as the dead church. Thank you, Jamie, for this assignment. This ought to be a wonderful message. <laughs> but, but what makes for a dying, dead church? I guess maybe it's Pastor Emeritus, which is Latin for I can't believe he's still alive, means I can come back and maybe speak like a father, even prophetically, to a church that I call home, that a church that I love so much, Really, the question this morning is that what sucks the spiritual life out of people? Because it's people that make up the church. Church isn't an institution. Church is you, every one of us. And as long as every one of us, we are healthy, it's a healthy church. If a few of us become sick, if we get a bad cold and we become sick, we can infect the whole church. The whole church can become sick and apparently the church can die. Many times the, the culture of the city seeps into the church. It's just the way it is. And this church was in a city called Sardis. Now, now Sardis was basically at the junction of five main roads which made this city very wealthy, not unlike Scottsdale. 
People enjoyed somewhat of comfortable lifestyle. They loved living in Sardis. But the city did have a, a history because it was known throughout history before and after as being a, a bit on the lax side of life and a bit on the overconfident side. But it had been actually captured, invaded and captured twice. First time by Cyrus the Persian in 549 B.C., Later again, a second time, by Antiochus Epiphanes in 218 B.C., both times, it fell because it was unaware of its vulnerability. I mean, if you know you're going to get hit in the stomach, wouldn't you think you'd do some sit-ups? And yet they are unaware of their weakness, and therefore they get taken over and invaded. You see, this city was built on a hill. And it had steep precipice which made up its defenses so it appeared to be impregnable. And it was because of this sense of security, success, wealth that dulled its awareness to the danger on both occasions. Cyrus and Antiochus had their troops scale the slopes of this precipice at night and found that the self-sufficient and Self-indulgent people of Sardius never even posted a guard. Never even posted a guard. Totally unaware of any danger. And it happened twice. Well, these people of Sardis brought this same spirit into their church. Because culture, that's what influences us. That what, that's where we get our thinking, our language, our culture. And, and we bring it into wherever we come and become a part of. And so the culture of the city was brought into the church. The culture of Scottsdale is brought into this church. It is, it is as it is. Now with this church, with Jesus, there's no mention of persecution. As with the churches of Smyrna and Pergamum. There's, there's no mention of false teaching as with the church in Thyatira. But there's still a problem here in this church. This church in Sardis was comparatively sheltered, protected. It appeared to be pretty successful. But apparently they were unaware that they were also pretty vulnerable. Even the Athenian statesman Solon in the 6th, 6th century B.C., known as one of the seven wise men of Greece, had warned Sardians, had warned them about a character trait of self-sufficiency and self-indulgence. He, he wrote this, Quote, no human being is self-sufficient in every respect. Something is always lacking in every matter. It becomes us to mark well the end. For oftentimes the divinity gives men a gleam of happiness and then submerges them into ruin. End of quote. Now, now his theology is off. But his observation of these people is dead on. And so Jesus writes them a letter. And we have a copy of this letter. It's stashed right here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. This letter from Jesus to the church in Sardis. And notice how he begins the letter. Verse 1 of Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You are dead. But you know, this is really not the letter you want to get from the boss. I mean, what is missing here? 
In the other letters, they make for a great four-point outline because they begin with a commendation. No commendation here. It begins with a condemnation. Blows my four-part outline. And he begins, and Jesus begins the letter with, you're dead, and you better wake up to it. So with this condemnation, this letter is given to the angel. Now what does he mean, and to the angel of the church in Sardis? The word angel means angelos. All it means is messenger. So apparently, as, as John received this, this letter, and these letters, and this book of Revelation on the island of Patmos, the Pino Island, when he was there, exiled, we, we find out Domitian, who put him there, the emperor of Rome was executed, well, actually assassinated. John gets off the island. John brings all these letters to, to Turkey and Ephesus and gives the letters out. How do we know this? Because we have the book of Revelation, and we have these letters. And what's interesting, these letters were given to the messengers to these churches. And this particular letter apparently is given to the messenger who would deliver this letter to this church in Sardis. And probably wasn't real thrilled with having to read the letter from Jesus. What does Jesus mean? He who has the seven spirits of God. I already explained that in the very first chapter, verse 4. That's the Holy Spirit. This letter of Revelation was given from God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But he gives us the Holy Spirit in the seven roles that the Holy Spirit plays in the life of humanity. We're given this in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. We're actually given the seven roles. We all have, and we all function in different roles. For example, I'm a, a minister, I'm a husband. But sometimes I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, I'm a teacher, a professor, a pastor, a president. I have roles, you have roles. The Holy Spirit has roles in the church. And it's interesting to me that Jesus, when he's identifying himself, he mentions, I'm the one who sent you the Holy Spirit, who came to give you life as a church. The prophecy of Ezekiel 36 and 37 is that it would be the Spirit of God that would give life to dead bones. So here's this church, I sent the Holy Spirit to give life, and, and you're dead like a bunch of dead bones. Well, my prayer, this would never happen to Scottsdale Bible Church. Jesus possesses, he says here, the seven stars. Again, in chapter 1, verse 27 stars are these seven angels, these seven messengers who would deliver these letters. The point is this letter is directly from the boss. The one who builds this church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus Christ himself. This isn't my message. This is his message to us this day. And he says, I know your deeds you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. It's not a good thing to hear from Jesus. The Sardis Bible Church had a great reputation among churches. This was the first church of what's happening. These folks had t-shirts saying, we're the coolest church in the valley. And people wanted to go to this church because it looked really good on your social resume. Where do you go to church? Oh, I go to Scottsdale Bible. Whoa, I hear that's a great church. I go to Sardis Bible Church. Whoa, you must be really sharp. So people loved going to this church. Everybody apparently is impressed with this church. Except for one. The boss. The creator of the church. The head of the church. Jesus himself, he says, no, you have a reputation of being alive and something else, you're dead. You're dead. Remember the movie Princess Bride where Billy Crystal plays that strange wizard and he declares that the hero who's supposed to be dead, he says he's not really dead, 
He's only mostly dead. That's kind of what's going on here. Because later in verse 4, he'll say, no, in this church, there are people very much alive. There's healthy, healthy life in this church, but there's cancer in this church that's killing it, even to the point that it's dead. So what makes a church mostly dead? This word dead speaks of the, the absence of life. They're leaking life. They're leaking spiritual life. Well, what is this that they're leaking? What is this life they're leaking that's producing the absence of life and thus this, this death? Physical death is separation of your soul from your body. When your soul separates from your body, you are physically dead. Separation. Spiritual death is when your soul is separated from God. When your soul and God are separated, you are spiritually dead. Death means separation from relationship. Now, philosophers used to ponder about the spark of life. What is the essence that makes life alive? They had a word bios, like biology, but animals have that. That's eating, breathing. That's basically existing and surviving. It's not the spark of life. So they had another word they used, zoe. And when they used zoe, that was the idea of the spark of, of life. What makes life living? And Jesus himself defines it for us in John 17. Jesus is praying to the Father. In the first two verses, he says, Father, I've come to give them eternal life, eternal zoe. And this is eternal life. He gives us the definition. It's relationship. It's the opposite of death. Death is separation from relationship. Life is a relationship, he says, first with you and then with your son and thus with one another. So, so life is this relationship, the spark of life from just existing begins with the relationship we have with our creator who becomes our heavenly father in the relationship we have with his son that authors the church and thus our relationship with each other. What's making this church so sick? The answer is simple. Relational suicide. Relational suicide. Instead of creating relationship, it's creating isolation from God and from each other because of the culture seeping into the church, the culture of self-sufficiency and the culture of self-indulgence. Self-sufficiency was murdering their relationship, experiencing their relationship with God, and their self-indulgence was murdering the relationship they would have with one another. The people of this church, they were, they're like a kind of living dead, like spiritual zombies. We've seen movies about zombies. Here in this church, it's filled with these, these, these zombies because they are separated from God because they live like pra practical atheists instead of experiencing the relationship of God's grace every day of their life. They live every day as there is no God. They're too distracted, too busy, too comfortable, too self-sufficient to acknowledge God even engaging in their life on a daily basis. And they're so self-indulgent that basically it's me, myself, and I. It's that blessed trinity. It's basically me and my family, and I'm not really too care, concerned about anyone else. And it's creating this death in the church. Now notice he says in verse 2 and 3, wake up and strengthen what remains. Anne is about to die. 
What is it that remains and is about to die? For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. What, what works? Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. What, what, what had we heard and received? Heard from whom? Received from whom? Jesus. He's writing the letter. Well, what is it that, that we would have heard from Jesus and we would have received from Jesus? There was this lawyer in Matthew 22. And this lawyer's trying to test Jesus. And he basically asked Jesus the question, summarize everything you teach. If there's one thing you want to leave and you want to communicate to, 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 to our fans, what would it be? He says, what's the greatest of all the commandments? What's the most important thing, Jesus, you believe God ever said? And remember what Jesus said? He said, the first of the great commandments, you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. It's like the lawyer's going to walk away and Jesus says, wait, come back here, I'm not done. And the second is equal to the first. And that is you will love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, James, according to James and Paul, uh, uh, Paul, the way we love God is by loving our neighbor as ourselves. Because in James chapter 2, verse 8, James says, now you want to fulfill the royal law of God? Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says in Galatians 5, 14, you want to fulfill the law? Then love your neighbor as yourself. It's like they forget the first one, loving God. They forgot nothing. They understand a father's heart. You love a father by loving his children. Because that's a father's heart. And God said, you love me with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And the way you express that love is you love my children. And so that fulfills the law of God. So Jesus says, remember what you heard from me. Remember what you received from me. Boy, if we need some focal points that produce a spiritual life in our church, we don't have to go any further than this. Loving God, our heart, soul, mind. And then expressing that love for God by loving others, by serving them. People have asked, well, are these folks in this church Christians? Maybe they're dead because they're not Christians. Oh, no, verse 4 makes it clear. There, there's Christians in this church. They believe in Jesus, much like James said in, in James 1.25 when, when James says, Now be not forgetful hearers, Christians, but effectual doers. For this man, this woman, shall be blessed and whatever they do. See, James is saying the word of God does not work. It's like a seed. The seed does not work unless it's sown. The word of God does not work unless it's obeyed. And these folks, they're a wonderful Bible church. They know the doctrine. They know the truth. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know that the whole point is obey it. Paul, when he's writing a young pastor, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.5, he says, Timothy, remember, remember, teach your church that the purpose of all doctrine, the purpose of everything you learn, everything you learn is to love with it, is to love God with it and love others with it. That's why we learn. That's why we're a Bible church. Holly, who, who mentors women, and all, she will spend an hour and a half, two hours with, with an individual woman or two or three women and go deep. I call it getting women unstuck. She calls it soul work. She's got like some 300 women that she has invested so much of her life into. 
And she was discussing with one woman, and they got apparently a little on the politics and, and justice. And, and Micah chapter uh, 6, verse 8 came up, where, where basically summarized, uh, do justice, lo lo love kindness, and walk humbly before your God. That kind of summarizes this hero, man, this is what God expects from you. And the big debate is, yes, justice. We need to vote for justice. You know, we, 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 we need to get angry because we're not seeing justice. We're losing justice. And all I reminded this dear, dear lady, no, no, what does the verse say? It doesn't say that we need to get bitter over justice, angry over justice. We need to vote for justice. He says we need to do justice. Don't think you can vote for it and not do it. So it is doing, it's sowing the seed, it's obeying what God said. This is a good Bible church. They have their doctrine right, they don't know what to do because they don't know about obeying it. What had they received and heard from Jesus? You be about loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and you, you be about loving God by loving others. This creates life. This creates relationship with God and with one another. But your self-sufficiency creates death, separation from your God, and your self-indulgence separate from one another, and therefore you're creating cancer in your church. It will kill your church. Self-sufficiency murders our relationship with God because we just pretend there is no relationship. Self-sufficiency is, you know, I'm pretty well uh, uh, the captain of my ship, I pretty well spend my day uh, doing what I need to do, and I really don't give God a second thought. Meanwhile, how do you enjoy this love relationship, this relationship with God? Do you understand every day, every day, multiple times every day, God has given grace? God is pouring grace upon grace upon you? You know, the word, I studied the word grace a long time ago. The word is charis in the Greek, and and it means, you know, terms like unmerited favor. Uh, it means uh, to have what you don't deserve. Well, those are great definitions. I don't know what to do with them. What do you do with, well, I know I don't deserve any of this. And yes, I know that's all about the unmerited grace, unmerited work, reward. I don't know what to do with that stuff. So as I studied it deeper in the last few months, I realized the word charis actually means Unexpected kindness. Unexpected kindness. And the word kindness is, is the word hesed, loving kindness. It's, it's when Moses says, God, what is it about you you want us to know? God, what is your glory? And God says, I'll tell you my glory. Here's what I want known about me through the world, through you. I want people to know about my compassion, my grace. I'm long-suffering. I forgive. I'm about truth. But twice, he says, I'm about hesed, loving kindness. I'm about your well-being. I'm about the well-being of others. God's about our well-being. We live in a fallen world, folks. We make a lot of stupid decisions every day. And others make a lot of stupid decisions that affect us. And the course of sin would beat the spit out of us every day of our life. But God constantly, constantly gives us unexpected kindness and saves us five, six, 20 times a day if we were just looking and awake and aware. And what does that feel like? Hesed feels like absolute sense of well-being. The word grace, charis, is very similar to the word for joy, kara. And what does it feel like when all of a sudden you go, 
Oh boy, that could have gone sour. Oh, where are the cops? I went through the red light. A little, oh. Oh, oh, look at, oh, that could have, oh man, and I said, the per, and you know what the, it's joy. It's that moment I have this remarkable sense of well-being, and I shouldn't. I wasn't expecting it. I was expecting to get beat up again by this world. I was expecting something bad to happen again. I was expecting to lose that relationship. I was expecting to not have that person respond well and unexpected kindnesses throughout my day. And they're authored from my Heavenly Father. And the feeling is joy, the sense of well-being, there's no fear of the future. And that enriches, that's when you know your relationship with the, whole, with, with the Heavenly Father is real and intimate and it's real to you. But if I spend the whole day and I'm not even looking for these grace upon grace and these unexpected kindnesses, I blow right by them. Why would God even want to continue to deliver me from all the course of sin in my life and the sin of others in my life? Why would he do that if I'm totally ignoring that he's constantly engaged, engaged? This is called practicing the presence of the Spirit of God engaging in your life every day. That produces life. But if I ignore him out of my self-sufficiency, I'm producing separation and death. Self-indulgence? Well, think about it. If I'm all about my self-indulgence, me, me, that's what's close to me, my, my family, and I'm really not even concerned about your well-being, how does that build a relationship with you? Have you ever been pouring your heart out to somebody and all of a sudden they look at their watch? Ooh, don't you just want to, in the name of Jesus, hurt them badly? <laughs> it's because you feel so devalued. And what it is, is in my self-indulgence, I don't have time for this. Yeah, I'm about me. I'm about my concerns. And that murders, that destroys the relationship that we have with each other. But when you have somebody that's consumed with your well-being, and by the way, that's where you find a satisfaction of life. If you're all about yourself, pleasuring yourself, meeting your own needs, it gets really empty, really empty, real fast. There's no significance in that. There's no satisfaction in that. It's like a black hole. But you find your fulfillment that everything you have, any ability, any gifts, and you find how it benefits others, and you are absorbed with the well-being of others, that produces intimacy and relationship that produces life. And to do the opposite of self-indulgence produces separation from one another and that produces death. And it kills. Look at what the counsel he gives. He says again in verse 3, Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it, obey it, and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Well, I, I really don't want Jesus coming against me. And I really don't want Jesus coming against our church. Jesus says here, you, you, you recapture your spiritual life. You maintain your spiritual life. He says, notice first, wake up, take a good, honest look at this whole thing. It's like the end of Psalm 139 when David says, oh, Lord, I, I don't know. If there's any wicked way in me, would you show me? God, if, if I really am self-sufficient and I don't give you much thought or even, even try to recognize the constant grace you pour upon me daily, God, make me aware of that. And God, if I'm so consumed with my own self-indulgence, 
And that's why no one feels close to me because I'm not close to anyone. Then Lord, please wake me up to that. And so strengthen the things that remain. How do I do that? Remember what you have received and heard. What was that? Love God with all your heart, soul, spirit. And you do that by loving one another, your neighbor. So he says, keep it, protect it. The truth is like a seed. Doesn't work unless it's sown. Word of God doesn't work unless it's obeyed, surrendered to. So he says, repent. Make up your mind and turn from your self-sufficiency and your self-indulgence. Verse four. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Oh no, there's still some who are clothed in white. And notice he says they are, they are worthy. You know the reason we fall back into self-sufficiency and self-indulgence? It's because we fall back into a mentality we've got to take care of ourselves because no one else is going to help you. No one else is going to walk with you. No one else is going to be pleading your case, taking care of you. You better just take care of me, number one, big time. And that's when we fall into this, this self-sufficiency, self-indulgence. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I will walk with you. Remember the end of Matthew 28? I, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the... You may ignore my presence with you, but I'm with you always. And notice he says that I will give you. I will give you white. Look, look, look what he says here. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. He's talking about forgiveness here. This is being an overcomer. Look at verse 5. He says, For the one who conquers, the overcomer, will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, what the Spirit of Christ says to the churches. He who overcomes will have these white garments. It's a picture of this forgiveness. Yeah, well, 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 well but who overcomes? How do you overcome? You know, John gets off the island of Patmos like we said, right? He writes three more letters after he gets off the island of Patmos uh, from Ephesus. They're called 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, probably the final three books of Revelation. And in his letter in 1st John, he actually explains some of the stuff mentioned in Revelation when it says, he who overcomes will, will not have their name blotted out of the book of life and will be clothed in white garments. Well, I like that. How many of us in this church get to be clothed? Listen to what he says in 1 John 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God's provision for our forgiveness, is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. If you love God, you'll love your neighbors yourself. He keeps coming back to the same thing. Those are the focal points. But this we know, that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God, here it is, has overcome the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is that that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? When the angel says to John, you want to see the bride of Christ? The angel shows John and he sees the new Jerusalem. But the new Jerusalem is not clothed in, in white garments, 
But the people in the new Jerusalem will be clothed in white garments, forgiven and emplaced. That's why Jesus said in John 14, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, I would have told you. I, I go to prepare a place for you. What is this place? The new Jerusalem. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you, receive you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. That's why he declares us his sons and daughters in 2 Corinthians 6. God says, I'll be a father to you. You'll be sons and daughters to me. Not only have I provided your forgiveness, I've placed my spirit within you, giving you his desire to honor me as your father. To, to be awake to the grace, the relationship I have with you every day, and that overflows, that you're not self-indulgent, but you're about the well-being of each other. There's life flowing from you, and any church you're a part of is life. So he says, you're my children, you're my sons and daughters. You'll be clothed in white, and I am not going to be losing my sons and daughters. What's this? And I will not erase, I will not blot his name from the book of life. I'm always amazed what we do with the Bible. First answer question I get with this is, oh, does that mean we can lose our salvation? Lose our salvation? Let me read this again. I shall not erase his name from the book of life. Yeah, but it implies that maybe it could happen. What's wrong with you people? I mean, how many of you fathers would, would lose your sons and daughters? Do you think your heavenly father is going to lose his sons and daughters? What's going on here is the ancient communities had a register of the living, much like our census. It was called the book of the living, the book of life. When you're born in the village, your name was added to the book of the living, the book of life. And when you died, your name was blotted out. Your name was erased because you died. Jesus is saying, unlike your book of life, your register of the living, that when you die, your name's blotted out, your name will never be blotted out of my book, even if you die, because I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you are also clothed in white in the new Jerusalem, which will be planted on a new heaven, new earth, and talk about eternity. So what are the focal points that create life? Church is dead. Why? Because they got a lot of dead people producing death. How do they produce death? They let their culture seep into their church. And therefore, their self-sufficiency, they're not even seeing that there's a relationship with God every day. They don't even see the grace of God, the unexpected kindnesses, where God delivers us from the course of the sin of this fallen world, the sin of others and our own, throughout the day of grace. And therefore, their separation instead of just going that's another unexpected kindness God that's another unexpected kindness and the joy and that produces life because that produces relationship with your father and instead of being self-indulgent I'm all about the well-being of you when I'm with you I want to know how are you doing I'm doing fine shut up how are you really doing don't be nice. I want to hear because I care about your well-being. Because that produces relationship. That produces life. And for me to do anything else produces death and separation. There was a new minister in a small Oklahoma town. 
discouraged by the lack of the response of people in their little church. So he placed a notice in the local paper that the church was dead. And it was his duty to give it a proper burial. So the funeral would be held the following Sunday, but the whole town turns out. And in front was a coffin smothered with flowers, open, but no one could see who was in it. After the obituary and the eulogy, the pastor invited the people to, to pass by the coffin to pay their last respects. As a long line formed, each curious mourner looked into the coffin. Shocked, they turned away. See, in the coffin, tilted at the correct angle, had been placed a, a mirror to reflect the dead. The church is not an institution. Church is you. That's you. That's you. It's every one of us. It's me. And I, let's just do what Jesus asks us to do in this letter. Let's not get defensive. It's not panic. It's this letter, and he's saying, Wake up. And I need to ask myself, Daryl, self-sufficient is when I'm no longer looking for God's grace in my life daily. Is that true? God, am I a little bit on the self-sufficient side? Am I watching for those unexpected kindnesses, how you save me, save me, save me, save me, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me, every day from the course of this world I live in? And am I constantly thanking you with joy? Or Daryl, how about the self-indulgence? Is when I meet you, when I meet people, the last thing on my mind is their well-being. I'm a little too self-indulgent. Oh, Father, purge this from me. God, may it be life issuing from me. Relationship with you and others. Lord, let me not be the author of death. May I not be cancer in a healthy church that could bring it down. In other words, Lord, may we walk worthy. Heavenly Father, I would pray that we would, as a church, Stay healthy. We listen to these words of Jesus and we are mindful and we take them to our hearts. Purge from us, Father, any one of us, any self-sufficiency that you see. Ah, Father, we confess any self-indulgence that you see. Purify our hearts that we might remember what we've heard and what we received from you, Jesus. As a church, we love you with our heart, our soul, our minds. And we are loving you by loving our neighbors, ourselves. This we ask in the name of Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Daryl. You're welcome.